Hey agency owners, it's time for a new episode of the Agency Blueprint, the number one podcast for agency owners looking to discover strategies for scaling an agency to seven figures and beyond, while reducing stress and getting your personal life back. I'm your host, Robert Patton, international bestselling author, agency scale partner, and founder of Creative Agency Success. Before we get started today, I'd like to send you a copy of our brand new book, The Practical Agency, written specifically to help creative agency owners go beyond the creative side and build systems to simplify and quickly scale their agency to $100,000 a month. Go to creativeagencysuccess.com forward slash practical agency to claim your free copy. And now for the show. Hey, everyone. We have Jen with us today. She's an agency owner and a member of the Agency Blueprint Mastermind Program. In this episode, we're going to be going through a live consulting session with her and with all of you today. She has two items that she's looking to solve in her agency right now, and we're going to carve out a pathway forward for her. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jen. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. To start us off, would you mind sharing a little bit about your agency, what you do, and how long you've been in business? Sure. We are about six years old as an agency. There's eight of us focused on building brands, foundations primarily, uh, and then activating those brands into websites, collateral, graphic design for clients on a retainer basis. You know, we've been growing steadily over the six years that we've been in business and are just about to hit, you know, about hitting that million mark. Yeah, that's really exciting. You have a couple of months where you're at that run rate. So I'm really excited to see that official 12-month trailing financial that shows that million-dollar number for you. And I'm really excited to celebrate that with you. So I know you have a couple things you wanted to go through. If you want to go ahead and hit me with the first one, we can sort of explore it together and figure out what we can do to solve the problem for you. Yeah. So kind of, you know, what I spoke of is our, our real sweet spot and what people know us for and, and love us for is the foundation setting of a brand. So strategically, who are you in market? What's your differentiation? How do we talk about you? What flag are you putting in the ground? And how does that show up visually with that visual identity? So we've done a lot of those types of projects and most of them turn into activation work as well. But the activation work, and you've been helping us with this, Robert, in terms of turning that into more retainer base of work, it's still fairly execution oriented and only the execution we handle, which we do website design and development. We do decks, a collateral and that type of thing. But I want to be able to stay in front of them on a longer term basis and actually more on a strategic basis. Like how are they building their brand internally? You know, what are the activities that they're doing? And I think we get stuck into kind of a service provider mentality when we get into those retainer agreements and I want to be able to stay in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a bit more reactive is what you're saying rather than actually being proactive in the relationship where you're ex- you're fully executional, not advising them is sort of the problem. Yeah. And, and, Exactly. And because we don't tie that work to metrics of their growth, we're not reporting on the success of that work. It becomes more service oriented. Yeah. And we start off of all of our partnerships with such a strong strategic position and being able to support that. I want to be able to keep that partnership on a street. And where do you think that sort of falls off with the relationship? At what point does that change for you and for them? I guess the hard part that we're that we have is a lot of that strategy is held with our strategist. And when we move into the execution, they're often working with a, an account manager, project manager, and the design team. And while, you know, we rope in and the, you know, myself and the strategist are kind of aware of what's going on on the production side of things, but it's kind of a cost benefit analysis of us being involved in all of those meetings and really in front of them to see what they're, you know. So how do we, kind of, what's the sweet spot of making sure we're still on the account and seeing what's happening and being able to advise the client without putting so many hours towards that because it's really in a production state at this point. 
So what is it exactly that you're wanting to create? And what would you like to see that relationship be? And like, let's clarify how you want to have that engagement ongoing. Aside from just like overall strategic, how do you see that ongoing engagement being? Yeah, I think part of it is encouraging our clients to see brand as something bigger. So, you know, when we think about building a brand, those activities happen in so many different places. So the the ideal strategic partnership that I see is one where we're touching base on a on a regular cadence if it's monthly, you know, even if it's quarterly, just to say, what are you doing that's building the brand towards this guiding star we all created together at the beginning of our engagement? You know, how is onboarding going? Do you feel the staff is aligned with the values? Do you have any issue with partners not really knowing what you stand for? You know, kind of, and we haven't found a good way to vet how the brand is going aside from how great do you look, how, you know, how impressive and is your website, is it converting those types of things? So, you know, that's what I really, they would really value that. So I would say I would even back up to before the engagement even started is the first place that I would want to start exploring to build that relationship. Because I would imagine in every expectation with a client, uh, not every expectation, the expectation setting starts in that initial sales conversation. So you want to have it that we are starting to explain to them in that stage that there is an ongoing aspect of that brand rollout that has so many different aspects of touch points from internal to external to the client journey from both marketing, sales, and then actual customer service and how they're actually going and being engaged with the brand on an ongoing basis and what that client experience is once they become a client as well and how you manage that client across the entire customer journey and how there's pieces of that brand rollout aside from, you know, the website, the sales collateral presentations, business cards, you know, graphical elements that are that initial rollout, which is where you're where things are going kind of automatically for the client is that's how they're starting to see you. So I would look at one, how is it that we are establishing from this, the onset of the relationship while we're still even pitching them just on the brand project of what it looks like for an ongoing relationship and why they would even consider that a really meaningful thing for them on the long term. And so one of the ways that I like to go about doing this is I would draw and you, you know me and drawing out models and things, but I would even potentially look at actually showing them and creating the mindset for them and, and, and kind of putting in their head what's going to happen at different phases of their brand rollout, right? Is that they're starting here at like ground zero and ideally having this like bell curve of how the emotional journey for both internal and external people are going to feel about the brand, but they're going to have these like massive touch points of how they're going to feel about that rollout. Initially, they're going to be really excited. They're going to feel like they have a very clear understanding of what needs to happen. The strategy's there, the website's launched, all those things are happening. But what tends to happen at this stage, right, is that people tend to take their foot off the gas because the initial reason that they started engaging with you at this point is done, that their initial pain point, their challenge that they were really suffering through, they no longer feel that. But the actual goal of what they wanted from that brand rollout and the strategy and everything that you're doing with them hasn't fully uh, come to pass yet. And they still have to look at how everything is going to fully be integrated into everything that they're doing and not recognizing how many places that brand strategy and brand um, build out the identity, the messaging, everything, and how it should actually touch every single aspect of everyone that interacts with the company and with their brand 
and how to actually go about doing that. So if you set that tone from the start and then start to build in throughout the relationship while you're in that project as well, we can start to build in meetings about different things. So not not fully related, but I was actually talking with a podcast agency client yesterday, actually, and we were talking about how they were not having a ongoing retention type situation where they were not having ongoing seasons. And the reason being is that they were the season would end and they would wait another year and they were not quite as excited as they were, but actually starting to have the conversation before that initial season ended. Right. So it's that that exact same mindset that I was talking with them for you, obviously slightly different, but we're going to start talking about what are the applications, what are they planning for and kind of doing even I don't like utilizing the word free, but you're going to be having like this pre project wrap conversation, but kind of this like mindset shift conversation that's almost like semi it's positioned essentially like a free consultation, but it's almost like a sales conversation that you're having with them that starts to be all the different aspects of the brand rollout. Obviously, you have the things you're doing typically, which does tend to result in an executional aspect from, you know, the deliverables, the assets, the websites, things like that, that are going to happen. But there's aspects to it as well that are not necessarily even fully deliverable based and asset based and design based. There's aspects of even how customer service manages the calls to the types of emails when they send them, like all these different pieces of that customer journey and have them understand how it actually gets to be applied because they don't know. And quite frankly, it's your agency and your responsibility to teach them those pieces. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I also think it made me realize too, part of the challenge I have is you know, we, we were a four-person agency at one point for a while and everyone could touch everything. And as we get larger, I'm realizing the pain point for me is not having those conversations, but it's it's when we do feeling like, you know, my strategists and I are out of touch with what we've been working on because the team's been running it. And then I feel almost inequipped. So what you've just given me the idea is setting that up from the start. Like, here's how this this is gonna, you know, pan out. First, we're very involved to set the strategy. It's really engaging. Everyone's, like you said, really excited. And we're gonna get to this place where we all know what we're trying to build. We're gonna set up some initiatives for your side, you know, how you're defining your process, things that you can do on your side. And we're gonna set up some execution initiatives on our side. Then we'll kind of roll it into the studio, if you will, side of our business, get those things executed, come back around and evaluate where, you know, what's next. So maybe it's positioning the way that we work with clients that way so that they um and do you think that that is has a potential to split the agency in a bad way and i mean realistically speaking that's how every agency is you have both the strategy people and you have the execution people and that's totally fine it's how you actually allow for the the customer to not feel the difference between them is the piece that's the, is that's the important piece so how do we allow the two different brains that you have within the agency, not obviously not only two brains, but thought processes or mindsets, how you're looking at the client and how you're looking at their strategy and execution pieces is how do you actually not have that feel disjointed? And what you were talking about, right, is as you become further and further removed, you're not involved in every single nuance of what's actually happening with the client. So there's information that your ex executional team is gaining, but how do you actually have that information transference happen, right, is super key. And there's lots of things that we can do. And how do we actually collect data, save that information throughout the client relationship that allows for you to be able to use, utilize it at an important time. So there could be formats and different sheets that we put together that's like, here's the key things that we need to be learning about of like any issues that they bring up. 
of things that their customers are facing or they see their attrition's down or for some reason they've had their average client lifetime value drop, like different things like that that tend to happen that you can then utilize and have conversations about. The other thing that I would do is like really having very clear understandings of during the engagement. Let's break it down into two different pieces we've talked about prior to the engagement. Now let's hit during the engagement of how exactly we engage with them. Obviously, at the beginning, you're going through these long, probably intensive, really meaningful, thought-provoking, fun experiences for the for the people that you're working with, with the client. Then we start to move into the executional piece, which you start to be removed and you're on to the next project, right? That's what happens. Typically, yeah, typically that's what happens. And then I find myself trying to hold the pieces of the, you know, the engagements that I know we're still working on. It's just, it's too much to hold at one time. Yeah. And so what we need to have for you, and ideally at some point your strategist as well, is build in a cadence by which something's actually going to happen in a, in a format by which the meetings are going to be conducted and that you're being prepped for the information that you need to go into that call, right? So here's going to be like the summary of the things we've been working on. Here's the summary of how things have been going. Here's the challenges that the client's still facing. So you're armed with the ideas. And here's like three or four ideas that we already have that the strategist may have been prepared prior to that conversation. But it's not presented in such a way that it's like a pitch. It's presented in such a way of you're doing like an account check-in. Here's like the things that we have seen. Here's the things that we've learned. Here's the goals that you initially came to us for. How are those things coming along? And then letting them unload on you of what it is that they're facing and what it is that they still need to solve. And then you have already had some predetermined ideas of things that you could be doing. And then you go ahead and bring those up, right? Like they were more organic and it feels very organic to them. They've, they're the ones that now have asked you for help. And then you're able to come in and help them with the ideas that you've brought to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think we're usually pretty great with those conversations because we generally do care. And I, and I think that's the hard part is like we really want to be involved in all of our clients um, on a strategic basis. So I like the idea of kind of an information data um, transfer so that we can have some insight into those, and which actually kind of leads into my, my next question, because I think we haven't had a dedicated account manager on the team. We had a couple project managers that we were hoping to, to kind of grow into that role, but neither of them have made it. And now we're looking to hire for the third time and hopefully we'll get it right this time. So that's something I'd love, you know, for that person. To, yeah, fingers crossed, Robert. So maybe you can help us with that. We're actively hiring right now and just want to make sure we're asking the right questions because we've now failed twice. We're a little bit, you know, cautious. Sure. And I mean, naturally, right? I mean, hiring the right people can be sometimes really an art in and of itself. And so I can walk you through my experience. And I'd actually even like to take a step because you're directly asking about the interview process. And I want to take a step even before the interview happens and talks a little bit. And I don't know whether these are things that you're already doing, but want to make sure that they're being hit. So to start off with the vast majority of time, and I don't know about your job descriptions and your job postings, but the vast majority of them are very business or agency oriented, right? It's not really written in the mindset of the person that we're looking to attract. And I think that any job posting should be written essentially like a, a piece of marketing copy, right? You want to think of the way that the person thinks, who are they? What do they do for fun? What kind of books do they read? Then like actually get into that person's mindset and write it for them, right? You want to try to attract the right person 
and try to push the people away that aren't the right person. So you're getting, you're attracting the right candidates to in the first place and making sure we're not like, you know, you're not just posting just to LinkedIn, but you're posting across multiple different job platforms. You're paying to actually boost those those pages. You're even potentially reaching out to ideal candidates and actually spending some time trying to recruit that person. Because, I mean, as you know, the most expensive thing in your agency is your team, right? And if we don't spend enough time actually recruiting those people, as much money that we would spend attracting a client, we should be spending a, a reasonable amount of money to actually find the right people so that the long-term people, they're responsible for handling our, our clients and making sure that they're having a, that superior experience. So want to make sure that we hit that if there's anything you have questions around there first before we actually go into the interview process. Yeah. The only questions I have around that, and I agree on the job post 100%, uh, we do let our personality shine through in it so they understand kind of what type of agency we are. But I think we could do a better job of really thinking about what they're looking for in their lives at the moment. But in terms of posting, so we also are probably an anomaly <laughs> to the people listening in this, in the, to this podcast, but we are... We hire local. We're in the San Diego region. So we hire local to this market. We like in person have a flex hybrid schedule. So it does limit, you know, how many applicants we get, obviously. And I think, you know, in the past, we have done all of the job posts. We've paid to boost it. We've put it in a million places. We don't get as much from that as we'd like. And I'm not sure it could have been the salary range at the time because in the past we couldn't pay as good as we can now. I guess what I'm trying to say is the best hires we've made have been the ones that we actively pursued. So we're doing the research and almost kind of stalking people and reaching out to see you know, <laughs> how they're doing. Just a little bit of friendly stalking, no big deal, right? <laughs> um, so let's let's hit the interview questions then, right? I mean, I don't, I can't necessarily say about the San Diego market and what sort of posting, where you'd want to be posting and which job boards and trying to actually post someone, but it is a lot more expensive, right? I'm sure you've experienced that, that the cost significantly jumps up. The way that I manage my interview process, and some of this is borrowed from a friend and colleague, Megan Keithin. She's from the Queen of Ops and has helped me even through a lot of my recruiting process as well and has helped me recruit and hire a number of people. And there was an episode in the last podcast, if you're interested in checking it out as well, listeners and Jen, if you want to hear from the master herself about how to go through this, but I'm going to sort of walk you through what we do and some of it from her, some of it not. The way that I think about it is I first, and as you've heard me talk about, is the five sort of non-negotiables for every single position. And so I'd look at to what those five non-negotiables are for that particular person, and then have them written down while you're interviewing each person. So you'd have each candidate actually written down on like a spreadsheet or on a, on a notepad that you're actually, while you're going through interviewing, and you'd have all of the non-negotiables, the five of them across the top, and every single candidate across the the left-hand side. So as you go through, you can make notes on every single one of those non-negotiables and make sure you're asking questions about that per about that particular thing and like how they've interacted with that, what that sort of means to them and how they would engage with a particular situation around that particular non-negotiable and note whether they have on a scale of zero to 10, how well they actually responded to that question and how you sort of felt about their response. So you can actually have some quantifiable way of understanding, okay, they actually are able to fully get the position and what they actually need to do. And that's one of the first things that I want, that I'd want to figure out is can they do the job appropriately and how I define the minimum requirements for the job. Yeah. So that was one, gonna, one of my questions. Sorry, the five non-negotiables are those, are those based on the job role and activities or values based or both? 
So it's the job role and the activities, right? So what exactly, so what the five non-negotiables are, are what is the minimum requirements in order for you essentially to keep your job, right? These are the five things that you have to do in order to just that baseline continue to work with us. So for an account manager, it needs to be how well do you manage conflict with clients and how would your client relationships that you've had in the past rate you on and why would they say that and what what is the type of relationships that you've built with them? What is the type of account growth that you've experienced working at an agency before and being able to grow those types of accounts? Is it 1%, 5%, 10%? What, how have you been able to actually grow those types of relationships and how typically you're able to contextually understand what the client's looking for and how it actually is rolled out, right? Because one of the things that's really important about the account manager is that they're supposed to be making sure that they are kind of the client to internal team liaison, right? They're supposed to make sure that the internal team's objectives are being met, that projects are being done correctly, we're staying in scope, but also that the internal team's hitting the client mark so that the client relationship is sound. So how do they manage those types of situations and the conflict sometimes that happens between clients and the internal team? Because that'll happen. And how do they smooth both sides feathers and make everyone feel happy and that they won in the end and what types of situations are they encountered for that and make sure that we have here's the five things that we really have to have this person do that's going to allow for us to be better and be able to not have you be in the same place that you were before with the last hires the other thing that we want to do is think about behavioral responses to things as well and so how do we actually what types of behavioral things do we want to think about and how do we rate them from you know, are they self-starters? Are they thinkers? Are they more change-oriented people? Are they really empathetic? Like, what are the descriptors behind the role that we're actually looking to hire here? And even having them and rating them on, you know, are they below par? Are they on par? Are they above par? On these, you know, four, five, six different personal characteristic attributes that we're looking for this particular role and how do they think as well? I think are extremely important. So those are the first two things is five non-negotiables and the behavioral attributes of how it is that we would actually want to have the correct person attracted for the position. Okay. And I'm curious your position on for the account manager role. Uh, I think there's kind of two theories of thought. One of them is that you want someone with enough job experience where they know what they're doing, but not haven't been in the agency world for too long because it can be a jading <laughs> it can make them jaded. Also, I mean, I think in general, we're a little bit different than other agencies. I'm sorry, every agency probably says that, but I've definitely come into contact with those that are kind of broken from an abusive agency relationship versus, you know, wanting to find someone who has a lot of agency experience because that's valuable for us in some respect. I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that. You know, I would rather still have someone that has the agency experience. I'm not really, yes. You're absolutely right that people come from agency world and have been abused and overworked and are tired and never want to work in an agency again. But I would want to find someone that has the experience and loves the work so much that the rest of that didn't matter. Because sometimes, you know, that is agency life, right? Like sometimes that will happen. We'll be really busy, but you have to love the work so much then none of the rest of it matters. I mean, obviously you have to have some aspect of work-life balance and your family should matter and things like that as well. And we can push those pieces forward in the, in, in the interview and let them know that we really care about that. And I know that you do, but I would still rather, and I always look at hiring someone that has been able to accomplish something. Anyone, especially at this high level, 
is been successful in doing the things that I want to do rather than trying to hire someone and train someone to be where I need them to be because then it just takes longer for me to accomplish. I'd rather pay the extra five, 10, 15 grand a year and have someone that has the experience than having to train them and go through the growing pains with them to get them where they need to be. Yeah, that's helpful. Although, you know, you do end up kind of untraining some things too, right? If we do, if we do things quite different. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. That makes sense. And that's where the sort of training that we have, the training high-performing teams, because those five non-negotiables that you'll define for this particular role, you utilize those in the training that you will go through as well and how exactly you build out that initial six weeks onboarding and ramp up for that particular role. And you'll use exactly those same five for the week two through six of their training and how you actually are able to do that. There's two other things that I would suggest you do here. And I'm going to hit these, these two ones. I don't think they need to be massively defined, but you do also obviously want to make sure they're cultural fit and that whoever's their direct manager, that they're going to be a personality fit for who it is that they're going to be managed by. There needs to be some aspect of cohesion there. And I would do some aspect of evaluation over that piece as well, just constantly thinking about that in the background. The other thing that I would also suggest that I love doing is actually giving them an assignment and having them do something to test their ability of something. So like it could be, you know, a scathing client email and then here's the internal report of what happened. And so I want you to give me a response to what you're going to say to the client in this situation and how would you attack this and how would you manage this particular situation? Everyone gets the same prompt. It's going to take you 30 minutes, no more than an hour to, to do this response, to read through everything and give me a reply. But here's everything you're going to need. Totally hypothetical situation or you utilize an actual client situation. Anyways, you then can learn from how that person thinks and how they would actually be on the job so that you're making sure that you've hired the right person. And if they end up not doing it in the specified period of time, you've also weeded out a person that isn't punctual, that isn't going to, isn't going to take initiative and really didn't want the position in the first place. So I do that with, especially in a director level or high level hire, I do this. That's awesome. And I thank you for the example idea, because that was something we had tossed around uh, internally, but I'm used to, you know, I'm a designer, so I know all of the kind of little quiz, quizzy things to do there. But when it came to account management, I wasn't sure how we could test them. You know, there's no portfolio to look at. So I love that idea of... <laughs> Even client email, we don't get a lot of them, but it would be nice to know how that's responded to. Yeah, hopefully you don't get them often, but if it ever does happen, then you know that the person is is able and capable of managing that type of situation. Yeah, that's a great call. And would you do that after you've kind of identified some top people you want to interview, or is this for everyone who applies? Like, how do you... So depending on the role and how many applicants I'm getting, I would, put, I would do that either before the initial interview or after the first interview. So depending on the number of applicants I'm getting, if you're having a number of volume of applicants, I'd probably do it after the first interview. That way you'll have a higher likelihood that someone's gonna do it. Otherwise, I'm also utilizing it as a way to weed out people that are not really that serious. But yeah. if you don't have a big pool of people, we don't wanna weed out people that potentially are and could be a good fit, right? So I would do it after for this particular situation for you. Okay, cool, I love that. Also, when you call references, and A, do you call references? But when you call references, what do you ask? Like, you know, what do you prompt? Well, for California? No, because they can't say anything. Yeah, they can't. <laughs> I'm not going to get any any reasonable response. You can't, right? So no one in California is going to provide a reasonable reference. Even if they were a horrible hire and they fired them, 
they they're not going to say much of anything. They may not even actually respond in a lot of cases. And if they do, they're just going to say yes, they were yes, they worked here. Yes, they left. And it's like uh, okay, well, that was extremely unhelpful, and it mm-hmm. doesn't really help me make any decision. So I would rely on that person. And it's the fun of being in California. So unfortunately, no, I wouldn't waste the time. It it doesn't get you any valuable information, in my experience, at least. The Final thing that I would do is on the final interview, and this is coming from another friend and colleague that I've taken, his name's Bill, and he suggested this to me quite a long time ago, and I've done it with every single hire since, is that I actually make the offer live. So I don't send them an email saying, congratulations, I'm giving you the job. I actually have, hey, we're going to do one final interview, and that's how I'm positioning it. They show up to the interview, and I actually tell them what the offer is going to be so I can see their excitement and know whether they're actually excited about the role. And if they're not interested in the position, I can see that in their faces and whether they're deliberating and trying to figure out exactly how much money they're going to get out of it and things like that, right? Then likely speaking, that's probably not the right person culturally for me, at least. And I mean, I also don't typically offer anything less than what the person asks for. If they ask for something, I'm not an offer, I'm not a fan of giving them less than what they asked. If that's what they feel like they're worth and I can afford it, then I should pay that to them. I don't like starting the relationship off in that bad way. So I don't typically have that money type conversation that's problematic, but I like to make that that offer live so I can see how excited, how engaged in the in the job they really are and whether I think that they're going to be excited about working with me and for me. And you said I don't ever offer them less than they ask for. We also can't yeah. ask in California. They have been paid before at other jobs. So do you directly ask them in the interview process what are your salary expectations? Yeah. What do you, what do you want to make? Okay. I mean, I personally, in my career, right, I've made multiple, many multiples in earnings over time too, right? And I'm all for people making more money, especially if they're able to provide the value and help the business grow. And I think that people should be fairly compensated. And that's one aspect of how people are able to equate how employers feel about their value. And obviously only one, not and any listeners to this podcast, and I'm sure they've heard me say this before, that is not the number one reason that someone stays in a position, but it is an important one, right? It va- it's validating to them of what it is that they're having as, as contribution. So yeah, I, d- I don't like offering any less than what they ask for if I want to hire that person, assuming it's in budget. I was going to say, if they ask for something out of your budget, then you don't even offer them a job, even if they're a great fit. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't think it starts a relationship off the right way. No, totally. The other thing too is, and there's kind of a mindset of, well, let's let's start with this is the starting salary because we don't really know what you can do yet. And once you prove it, let's bump it. Is that if they're asking for something that's potentially at your high range and you can't afford it, but they had better be rock stars, like how do you approach that? If they get in and they aren't rock stars, you're now kind of saying, well, we need to reset expectations here or I don't know. I mean, realistically speaking, to demote them, yeah, 100%. (laughs) But I mean, realistically speaking, this person has to be a rock star, right? You don't have an option to not have a rock star in the role, right? This is your client relationship person. So they have to be a rock star. And if they're not, then sorry, but there's the door. You have to let you go, right? It's not something that you're going to pay them less and somehow them not being good at their job is going to make it better. It doesn't. It just makes it you have to put more work in. Yeah. Okay. Does that get you into a good place or how are you feeling? Yeah, it does. I mean, as you know, the market's really wild right now for talent, especially in our region. A lot of people, I don't know, it's an interesting time. And so there, the other final question I have is really, how do you balance the 
how do you balance the process where you want to get as many people you can interview as you can and give time to make sure that that happens, you know, reaching out, actively recruiting for a, a decent amount of time so that you're really casting your wide net and at the same time, not losing potentially someone good that you didn't jump on, right? I mean, you have to move quickly in this environment, right? I mean, you can't delay very long. You have to be, if from the point that you're having the initial screening interview to the first interview to the offer, realistically speaking, needs to happen within a week if someone's actively looking. And they also typically speaking have to feel quite wowed right now. Yes. Megan did, did give quite a bit of good insight into this in that episode that I was referencing that I'm happy to share a link with you in both the notes and I will send to you too, Jen, is that you have to think about it really sort of strategically of how it is exactly that you're going about it from every single stage and making sure that you're going through it quickly. But if someone's able to tick all the boxes of what you need, then why not make the offer, right? Mm -hmm. Make sure that they're, they hit all five non-negotiables, they're hitting the behavioral traits, they're a good culture fit, and they're a good fit for the manager. And you, you feel that all the way through, then make the offer. And they did the assignment well. I, I don't see how you would go through that piece and I mean, you can and will have the exceptions to the rule, but more often than not, the hire is going to be great for the rule. Do you, how do you feel about introducing team to potential new hire? I have two minds about it, depending on the amount of engagement that they're actually going to have with that particular person. More often than not, I would rather have them just be interviewing with the, with the who it is going to be their direct report. The rest of them, the rest of the team, the manager should have a good understanding of the cultural fit piece. I would rather not have, especially in the market that we're in right now, not give the candidate too many hoops to jump through, enough that we're able to evaluate them, but not so many that they feel overwhelmed. It's also a bit kind of overwhelming, depending on the person, right? Especially for someone potentially introverted that over overstimulus of, you know, social types of contact can be quite shocking to someone. Mm -hmm. And an introverted person can do well in this role, and we're potentially excluding them by doing that. Even in an account manager role, I see that as being more of an extroverted role. I don't. Not I don't always. know that I agree okay. because you don't have to have someone that likes constant social interaction to be a good empathetic person. An introvert can be great one-on-one -on -one and phenomenal mm -hmm. in those types of situations in a couple of people, but just not great in being at a party. You know, that, yeah, that piece yeah. of it drains them. Maybe not a salesperson, potentially, right? Mm -hmm. But an account manager, I can see an introvert being quite well at it, actually. Okay. That's helpful. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jen. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Robert. I got a lot of good insight. I'm excited to uh, let you know which rock star we land with soon. Once again, thank you so much for carving out the time to hear what was shared on today's podcast. Now, chances are, if you're an agency owner listening to this podcast right now, then you may be feeling like this. Because I was finding myself constantly overworked within our business, um, constantly like too busy with fulfillment or too busy with uh, customer service needs. So I didn't have the time to go think about how am I going to close this person or what I'm going to say to this person or what am I going to do with this or what's the next strategy I need to do. Now, of course, this podcast is here to help you with a lot of things. But at one episode per week, it's going to take a while for us to share everything you need specifically for your situation. So if you're really serious about committing to fixing the problems in your agency now, so you can build a truly profitable business and get your life back, then I want to invite you to apply for the Agency Accelerator Program. 
I'm not so stressed during calls thinking, oh my gosh, I got, I got to sell, I got to sell, I got to sell because if I don't sell, I don't make our, I don't make our numbers, you know, and if I don't make our numbers, I can't pay our people. If I can't pay our people, then our business is down. This program is designed to help creative agency owners get to 1 million in revenue per year in 12 months or less. I tra typically charge one client a $3,000, anywhere from 2000 to 3000 Now I'm uh, moving towards only 5000 and up. And my latest client that I closed is a $10,000 client on a monthly retainer. We only accept about 20% of the agencies that apply to this program because we want to make sure that we only work with people who will commit the time, energy, and resources required to take what they learn in the program and use it to create an agency of their dreams. You've taught me and you've taught us how to build this within our company that if X happens, this happens, boom, 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 boom. Like it's so systematic that it's gonna work for itself. That has given me the sense of like, oh, I know what the heck I'm talking about. I know what I'm good at. I know that I can deliver upon what I wanna deliver. And it, yeah, I gained hell of a lot of confidence for sure. So if that's you, then I want to invite you to apply today. Just hit the link in the show notes to apply for the Agency Accelerator program or go to creativeagencysuccess.com forward slash apply. Thanks, and I'll see you inside the program. Mm -hmm.